The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to another edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one, the only, the now doing two parts of this episode, Tammy, the underwear, Underwood. Hi, everybody. Well, you actually sound joyous. Yeah, I love everybody but you. <laughs> everybody loves me. No, not really. No, everybody. No, yeah. I don't. Well, your mom does. I hate you. Yeah, a few more months, she's going to be here. And she's never coming over here. Oh, she's going to come over here. She's going to come over there. <laughs> she's going to come over there. Then over there. Then <laughs> definitely over there. <laughs> See that? <laughs> Why are you flipping me off? Because so I don't to like me. you. <laughs> Anyways. I love that your mom plays into this and fucks with you, too. And your sister. Oh, my God. I can't, I can't, no. The whole family's behind me just fucking around with you. It's, it's great. I know, it's disgusting. Anyways, so, <coughs> okay, so now they have uh, two women and a child. You know, the child was abducted and ended up murdered and dismembered. I'm telling you, man, um, the, the, the two women are bad enough, like, like for right. real. Which the two women but, can be connected, but I don't think the third one had anything to do with them. Whether it's... Because A, there's a ransom note. B, it's a child who was dismembered. You know, whether it's none of them it or the not, same. man, I'm telling you, man, fucking, well, it's doing anything to kids. It just pisses me. Oh yeah, that off to no pisses me off. Fucking avail. Yeah, but um, so what was I? Oh, I have to scroll down. You were right there. That's sure. where you were. You were Thank on you. the other side of the computers. I appreciate that. So once most of Suzanne's remains were recovered, law enforcement officials throughout Chicago conducted one of the city's greatest manhunts to date. Now, Lucy Freeman described it, and I thought it was just, like, impressive with all the numbers she threw out there. Chicago's greatest manhunt, and perhaps one of the most intensive ever conducted in the nation, was on. Police had the task of trying to pluck the killer out of a city of four million. They worked around the clock, often driving their own cars, using their own time. Police wired day and night questioning suspects, worked day and night questioning suspects. They interviewed more than 800 persons suspected of the crime, gave lie detector tests to 170. The crime laboratory compared 7,000 sets of handwriting with the ransom note, a total of 5,250 were received from all over the world, offering clues or theories, and 3,153 of those were investigated. I got to be honest, man. Like, seriously, if I was part of any kind of a task force and it was a child, I would do the same thing. I would work tirelessly. Oh, yeah. Well, I would, this asshole. I would too. I would too. Because it's it, it's a kid, man. You know, I knew she was here, but when I saw somebody out of the corner of my eye, I got startled. <laughs> Believe me, it happens to me every time I wake up. I look over and I'm too? startled. Oh yeah, scares the shit out of me. She's there like a freaking like a ghost, like a. Dude, one... I, I mean, I literally saw movement when I looked up. Somebody was standing like, "Oh shit!" It scared me. So, anyways. Yeah, she's not doing her job either. I've had to get my own goddamn coffee I know. twice. Twice. I mean, you see that, many fingers? Twice. Twice? Twice. Not once, but twice? But fucking twice I've had well, to get my own damn coffee. Too. Now what? So the leading theory among detectives with the Chicago Police Department was whoever kidnapped and murdered Suzanne must have driven a vehicle from the abduction site to the murder room. After all, if someone carrying the 74-pound child between 
carried the 74-pound child between locations, they likely wouldn't have gone unnoticed by others on the street that night, especially since the neighborhood streets weren't exactly vacant even in the wintertime. Now, the authorities interviewed some people who claimed they witnessed a woman in the area around the apartment using both arms to carry, quote, a large bundle. And she didn't walk very far before she got into the passenger side of a vehicle being driven by a man with thinning hair. I'm t- I don't think it would be a woman. And, and here's why. Well, that, that did the chopping up because women do kill kids. We know that. Oh, yes. However, women tend to drown their kids. Yes. Brown um, poison. Or poison, yeah. That, yes. You don't really, I don't, I can't recall off the top of my head at any time that I've read or heard about any woman cutting up a child after she's killed them. Uh, like, you, like you said, poison and, uh, and what have not. Yeah. Nice of you to show up. I'm just saying, nice of you to show up for the fucking coffee. <laughs> Nice to the coffee goddess. Appreciate Damn it. She's getting my coffee. Shut up. <laughs> I know. I, I'm in that mood to fuck with everybody today. Yeah, and you're on a roll. I am. I've just, I don't know. I woke up ill-tempered. Um, I had an asthma attack last night. I, just, I woke up in this horrible mood, you know, and just, I'm not, now I have to screw with, with okay. everybody. Thank you. Oh, see, she asks you what you want in your coffee, not Because well, I told her I was out of creamer. She and just so. walks over and looks at me and goes, drink it, bitch. I'm, see, I, said that, I would say that to you, too. But see, but see, that's where, that's, that's where, once again, we find out that people like me more than they like no, you. The, the, the bo- I mean, no, your first ex-wife. The boss gets no respect fan. is all I'm saying. Uh, the boss man gets no fucking respect. Look, your ex-wife loves me. Your coworkers love me. The coffee goddess shows me preferential treatment. I'm just saying, more people like me than they do you. It's all good. No, they tolerate. They're terrified of you because you're a goddamn Sasquatch, and you're they're afraid you're going to go wrong. Like, nah. They've seen pictures and videos of Sasquatches throwing rocks and shit, and here you are. They're terrified of you. That's what it is. I don't want to talk it. to you. No coffee. Bring it. No, too too late. Too late. I just no, no. Anyway, you're all pissed off. No, I agree with you. I don't think it was a woman either. I mean, she even if she was involved in the abduction, I don't think she. But then again, we did see with the Moore murders. Okay, no, I'll give it that. You but, know, but here's the thing: even with the Moore murders, they didn't talk about dismembering. Oh, that's that true. Kid, they never found his body. Right. Um, but they never talked about. Actual dismemberment. I mean, the the the, the death of the kid. Was I was going to say the death of the children was brutal enough. Yeah, but yeah. No, but, I see what um, you're saying. But I, th- think of what it takes. Okay, let's say that you have an adult. Right. Okay, so we're going to go with the coffee goddess right now, because you know, no coffee ended up. Um, <laughs> but let let's say that that uh, somebody murdered her, right, mm-hmm. and then dismembered her body. Now that takes a lot of time and effort. But yes, now you're going to spread that body everywhere. Yes, everywhere. And I only I use her as an example because she's not a very big girl, right? Um, you know, and she's by no means seventy five pounds, right? But um, she she's not a big girl. But so, you know, uh, I, I would use you or me as an example. But we're larger people. We are. So that's. A, but that, I'm damn good looking. That okay. takes a team of people to be moving any of our body parts anywhere. <laughs> Alive, no, dead, dismembered. It don't matter. Yeah, it don't matter, man. Like, you're, you're going to have to, like, go down to, like, you know, rent some staff or go down to freaking Home Depot and hire some Mexicans to help you. Because, I'm telling you, day labor. Yeah. Because you ain't moving us by yourself. But, no. you know, but she's not very big. So to put her head uh, in, like, the sewer. 
Right. And then distribute her body parts everywhere. Yeah. Is going to take, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of yes. effort. That's a lot of methodical behavior. Yes. Because you really have to think that through. That's not a spur of the moment thing. That's, you got to have some fucking planning. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. But then, you know, they also talked to another witness. He was a member of the armed forces on furlough. And he claimed he saw a larger man with dark complexion uh, carrying what appeared to be a shopping bag. But I'm sorry, even by today's standards with our reusable bags, ain't nobody going to fit a 74-pound child in a shopping bag. Right, even, right, right. Even dismembered. Right, uh, well, I, I don't thinking, think. If you cut down the arms, I guess you could probably put... The arms in one, but, but still, still, it's going to look, you still have a lot of blood. There's going to at least be some leakage. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a paper And bag. back then, they were canvas bags. Weren't they burlap, burlap bags? Were they? I don't know. I think so. I, 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 I wasn't alive then, so I have no fucking idea. But yes, there's going to be a lot of blood and, uh, you know. Right. And things like that. But I can kind of see why he said it was a darker complected guy, because the blacks didn't have the freaking... It wasn't a good time for him back then. That, that's true, too. That's so true, too. So, of course, you know, they, they're, they're going to sit there and blame blame the brothers. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, however, detectives could never track down the alleged couple or the dark man. Nor could anyone give them enough details for a composite drawing to release to the public. Now, Dolores Kennedy actually talked about, because remember back when it said that they took in 800 people, interviewed more than 800 people of interest? Right, and they polygraphed a bunch of them. Oh, yeah. um, and okay, like so that, yeah. out of 800 people, the most promising suspects were actually arrested. And upon those arrests, state's attorney William Tui and chief of detectives Walter Storms would tell the press that this time we found our man. Yeah, hold on. Inevitably, though, the suspect passed the lie detector test or came up with an alibi or the police were forced to admit that the fingerprints did not match. But we've seen that time and time oh, and time totally. and time and time again. Remember the servant girl mur- murders? Yes. They and arrested yes, everybody. Exactly. And, um, freaking, oh, we just did some within the last few months. We did Chester Weger. They did that with him, them. Um, there's been more, there's been at least four or five of them that we've but done yeah, in but over then it, 300 but episodes. But then we also learned in the Chicago, when we did the Honolulu Strangler, that... Um, you diminish a case when you arrest so many people. You want to make sure that, you know what I mean? Yeah, because all of a sudden nobody gives a shit. Yeah, because exactly. Because what they're seeing is they're seeing a bunch of damn Keystone cops running around. Like, you oh, know, like it was so, the Picton case. Yeah, the Picton case and things like that. They're seeing a bunch of people walking around, you know, running around like chickens with mm-hmm. their heads cut off. Totally. And all you're doing, all they're doing is, is creating this air of incompetence. Pretty much. Yes. So, I mean, and around the same time that all this was happening, William Tui had already made it clear what he wanted to do with his career. His ambitions were not only lofty, they were highly politically motivated. He wanted a seat on the circuit court. He was also well known for being Mayor Kelly's right-hand man and a successful enforcer of the law within the Chicago Police Department. Now, with every lead Tui put stock into fizzling out, he was left eating crow and looking like a failure. Mm, crow with barbecue sauce. Yeah, therefore, he remained active in the investigation. No, you know what I just thought of? Oh, my God. You've heard Chicago-style pizza? Chicago-style c- crow. Ew. Caw-caw! Caw-caw! Deep dish. They deep dish the crow. 
<laughs> now, he still remained active in the investigation because remember, Warren was active in the investigation on the Chester Uyghur, the state's attorney, which to me is weird because you're there to prove that the person did it, not hunt the person down. <coughs> you know, you're a lawyer. You're not an investigator. That's why, you know, uh, and I've, I think I've said this, but I'm not sure if I've said this on the air. But, you know, everybody needs to know their place. Yes. And everybody needs to know their fucking job. Yes. You know, you're there to fucking prosecute. You're not a goddamn investigator. You're not trained to be a prosecutor. or You're not trained to be an investigator. You're not trained to enforce the fucking law. You're there to prosecute. Right. Know your place, bitch. Right. And according to some of the reports I found, he would probably have been labeled a micromanager by today's style. So detectives, on by today's standards, excuse me. So detectives on the force knew they had to make an arrest in the case no matter what. Okay? Um, <coughs> now... The first person they arrest was a guy by the name of Hector Verberg, V-E-R-B-U-R-G-H. Now, according to reports, law enforcement officials weren't tactful about their investigation procedures at all in this case. In fact, one report used zealously to describe the pursuit of justice in the case. However, in my opinion, a better phrase would have been reckless abandonment. One of the first suspects they hauled one of the first suspects they hauled in, Hector Verberg, remained their primary suspect for a while. He Sounds was like a fucking vampire name. Well, What's your name? Hector. He Hector Verberg. Oh, oh, oh. Right. One, one suspect in jail. No. Two, two suspects. Now, ah, but ah, check this ah. out. He was a 65-year-old janitor of the apartment complex where the authorities discovered the murder room of where... Suzanne's body was dismembered, even though he had a, no criminal record. His, I put, even though his criminal record was cleaner than the Pope's, he was handcuffed and hauled into the police station for questioning. See, even back then, though, every new you you don't shit where you eat. Okay, right. so you're not going to have a murder room in the exactly God, fucking idiots, man. You know, so even though his criminal, like I said, was they handcuffed him, hauled him into the station for questioning. I go, well, at least that's what the officials called it. For approximately 48 hours, detectives didn't just ask Hector questions about the crime. They brutally assaulted him, trying to get him to confess to, to Suzanne's murder. They beat him so severely, he suffered a separated shoulder. After surviving whatever his interrogators threw at him for ten day, for two days, the authorities released him, although he remained a suspect. Now, there's a picture of him coming out of the jail where his wife is holding him up. You know, there's a better way to interrogate. You know how that is for torture? Make him watch televangelists. Oh, my God. Yes. For like 48 hours. You don't have to touch him. I guarantee you. Oh, my God. Yes. I hate televangelism. If I'm the, sorry. The, the, that's just megalomaniacs. You don't even say nothing to him. You just sit him in front of, in front of that TV with it on full blast. They can't turn the channel. They can't turn it down and walk the fuck out. You come on back and say, look, I need all the evidence that, you know, right. uh, you know, well, where'd you hide all the weapons? And this is what, you, you know, and, and what have not. And if they did it, they'll be like, look, I would rather you shoot me in the head right now. Because <laughs> as long as you turn this shit off. Yeah. Oh, no, not Joel Olstein. Ah! <laughs> Please God, no. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Look, I really did do it. My fingerprints would be all over this axe. I had it underneath my bed. My wife's name is Margaret. She pees twice a day. And, last, last and when I, I was 10. <laughs> yeah, when I was 10, I stubbed my toe. Like I would. If you make me watch Televangelist, man, I will tell you everything about my whole goddamn now life story. Now I know how to shut you up. So, <laughs> Oh, no, so, you'll never shut me up. <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as Hector left the police station, 
He was taken to the hospital to have his wounds treated. The hospital admitted him, and he was there for almost two weeks. Ten Jesus days to be exact, Christ. because his injuries were so severe. See, I don't know. I don't know what's worse, man. Our killers that we're talking about here are these fucking cops, man. Exactly. Both of them are assholes. So as soon as Hector recovered from the trauma, he gained a, he gained an attorney and filed a lawsuit naming the department as a respondent. He was asking for fifteen thousand dollars, which by April twenty twenty three's equivalent is a roughly two hundred and forty five thousand. I would have gone for millions, but okay. okay. But wait, check this out. Once the investigation into his claims was complete, the department settled the claim, and he was actually awarded twenty thousand, which is equivalent of almost about three hundred twenty six thousand dollars. Still not enough. Like seriously, right? If, but, you, if you're brutalized by the cops, I mean, act, not not brutalizing the fact that they're looking at you making comments or something like that. No, but if they but, lay their hands on you, I think oh, that you're entitled yeah. to millions. Unless you're trying to, if you're trying to strike the cop and you're and you're like throwing, you're you're, you're throwing right. hands. By all means, law enforcement officers beat the shit out of them. Okay, but he was in the hospital for ten days after being questioned for. 48 hours. Yeah, that's, re- that, that's that redonkulous. Is re- that is more than redonkulous. We should be shooting those kind of cops in the dick. That's ludicrous. That's ludicrous, yo. <laughs> I can't even eat my M&Ms with that. <laughs> and I got two pack of them. I hate you. I got the biggest small size. Why Why do you Why do you blaspheme Tupac? Anyways. Yeah, Tupac. As the winter snow melted and the spring flowers sprung up, law enforcement officials never had one solid lead to follow. However, that didn't stop them from developing multiple theories. Chicago sent the ransom note found on Suzanne's floor to the FBI to have it analyzed. Forensic techs found several prints on the document. However, most of them were accounted for, belonging to the family and law enforcement officials on the scene. Oh, I thought you meant prints like the singer. No, I said prints, not prints. Well, I figured it was getting getting you know awful rainy there, so they probably had some purple rain on there. Or the artist formerly known as. Right, right. Did they send it to them in a raspberry beret, the kind that you find at a secondhand store in a oh, little red Corvette? They, they might have, or they might have met her in a hotel lobby. <laughs> Masturbating all, to a magazine. All those magazines. <laughs> <laughs> but I you know what? Prince. You know what? But this is what it sounds like when doves cry. I'm it just is. Saying. It is. I, I love Prince. I'd love him. No, me too. Mm. So anyways, um, there actually were a couple of smudge prints that the FBI couldn't account for, and those were never identified. But that didn't stop the Chicago Police Department's leading fingerprint experts, Thomas I think it's Laffy, L-A-F-F-E-Y. Laffy Taffy Thomas. It does smell like Laffy Taffy. From trying to find a match in the thousands upon thousands they already had on file. And back then, they didn't have computers to do it. They had to do it by hand. Right, right, right. So law enforcement officials in Chicago weren't willing to admit defeat and declare the case cold out loud. However... Or, or to hands, either. <laughs> right? No hands, no defeat. I hate you. However, from what I was finding in the reports, they were weary and feeling dejected with every lead they set out to follow that never panned out. Then, suddenly, with no indication why, they honed in on William George Hirons as their prime suspect. This time, they would stop at nothing to, oh, thank you. Ooh, that was close, to close the case. I want to spill my coffee. Oh, that'd be coffee abuse. That, that would have been a party foul. That would definitely be a fault of the hands, and it would be on defeat. <laughs> And everywhere else. And everywhere now, else. Focusing in on George Hirons. Now, I'm going to talk about George's life because, you know, George and Margaret, George, uh, not George, William's life. Yeah, William. I'm looking at the uh, damn markers right here. It says no, William. Yeah, Where the fuck George, you getting George? His name is William George and his dad's name is George. And I got kind of confused for just a split second. God damn. I'm so, so anyways, confused. George and Margaret Hirons 
welcomed their firstborn, William George, on November 15, 1928. By all accounts, the beginning of his life seemed normal enough. The couple couldn't claim they had a happy marriage, but they also weren't on the verge of divorce. Um, George was a simple laborer. However, it didn't appear as if he maintained steady employment. Therefore, similar to what we, we are seeing in today's society, when the breadwinner of the family is an unskilled laborer, the Hirons family struggle with poverty, right? Yeah, it's the same way here. Yeah. I mean, they're what I call the underemployed. But he's it, not maintaining. Here's the thing. Even if you have unskilled labor. Right. Okay. By and large, if you hang out. Thank you. At uh, at a company long enough, right? You can work yourself up, and you can make a kind of a, a livable wage. By and large, I don't I don't mean in right. every single industry, but like uh, let's say that you're a laborer and uh, and you're working on construction sites and you're digging ditches, right? Well, eventually somebody's gonna notice that you're at work every day and you're kind of busting your ass. Hey, man, we need uh, another framer. Can you right. hammer a nail? Cool. Let's show you how to do that. And they're going to, you know, you're kind of learn, learn skills. But if old Georgie Porgy here is jumping job to job, he's like, fuck it, I ain't going to work. I don't want to dig ditches. Well, you no, know, you're not going to learn anything. Right. You're, you're, you're well, going to end up digging ditches and then bitching that you're poor. So fuck right. off. Right. Well, and then the Great Depression actually hit the year after William was born. They all needed medication for the Great Depression. I take it. It's Dude. wonderful. Yeah. So their situation became even worse. Now, George's employment was even more sporadic. And with what little money he earned, rather than some support his family he took his buddies out bowling and drinking there you go there's a prick yeah therefore i wasn't surprised when i found out the topic at the forefront of most of the couple's arguments was money or more specifically their lack of it right yeah you got this peckerhead yeah keep a goddamn job he's like hey let's go out bowling and drinking no doubt my kids and my wife don't need food what an idiot Mm -hmm. george you can fuck right off yeah so even though William's parents struggled to make ends meet and argued a lot, I couldn't really find anything to indicate they mistreated or abused their children. Three years after William was born, the couple welcomed their second son, Jer. Jerry or Jer, J- it's J-E-R-E. According to reports, when Margaret described her firstborn, she said he was a restless boy, mischievous. What boy isn't? I wasn't. I was a perfect angel. My ass. No, your ass is far from it. Your ass is like a, your ass is its own continent. It's its own terrorist organization. I dare you to say it again. Your ass is its own continent. No, not that. I was waiting for something else. But What, a terrorist organization? No, never mind. Now, (laughs) George's sporadic income and unreliable spending habits forced Margaret to find a job to help support the family. As a result, they had to hire babysitter to watch over William and his little brother. And most of the babysitters said the two brothers were quite a handful. Now, Margaret was working at a local bakery when she came. And, oh, my God, this, what he did as a kid, it's like, oh, my God, the kid's a genius. Um, Margaret was working at a local bakery when she came home one day to a frightful sight. In the parlor of their residence, a section of the carpet was scorched and the drapes were charred. Apparently, William was working on a science experiment when things went sideways and a small fire broke out. But hey, they put it out. Right? Yeah, it happens, man. Sometimes so, experiments go to crap. 
But oh my God, you're going to love him for this one. In another incident, she arrived home to find her son standing on the roof of their garage. He had fashioned some wings out of cardboard, strapped them to his arms, and climbed to the roof. When she found him, he was in a pterodactyl pose, just about ready to step off because he wanted to, quote, leap from a cliff. Stop right there. No, she shrieked in time to get his attention before he took took the last step to take flight. William Hirons, I have a job for you. I know, I was going to say, you would love If them. you're on the shorter side, <laughs> you can send me a an email right to my direct email with uh, with Twisted Blue, which is Scott Alexander. <laughs> Scott dot Alexander. No, Scott dot Alexander at TwistedBlueLLC.com. You're hired. You are hired. Holy He's been shit. waiting for somebody to dress up like a pterodactyl. I'm just trying to get the insurance company to fucking cover it. They won't cover me flying a fucking midgetactyl over a crowd of people, and it pisses me off. You would think if Pink and Lady Gaga can do it. I mean, like, Lady Gaga came flying down at the Super Bowl, remember? I don't no, know if you saw that one. But... I, I don't watch that oh. bullshit. I can care less I about the toilet bowl. I always thought you'd watch the show sometimes, but... Guess just like I can care less about freaking that they put a tranny on fucking Bud Light. Bud Light's, uh, Budweiser is gross to begin with. I don't care what's on it. I yeah. don't care what's a, if they have a tranny on there. I'm sorry, transgender. We can't call them trannies anymore. Exactly. I was, about, I was just about ready to yell at you for that one. Venus with a former penis or whatever. I don't care. It doesn't doesn't matter. Why? Because I don't drink that crap. And I've said this, I, I, I think I was saying this off the air. It's like, I, when I do drink beer, and I'm not drinking like bourbon or vodka or whiskey, um, you know, I like Widmere's Hepaweizen. Yeah, or a nice IPA. Yeah, or a nice IPA. I don't care if there's a rainbow on it. I don't care. I don't care if there's a picture of a big dick on it. I enjoy the beer. I'm still going to drink it. I can care less. You know, that's just, that's just the way that it is. Yeah. Hey, we want to throw in a little commercial here, by the way. No shit. What? Are you an older lady and feel lonely? Oh, God. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Make sure that you log on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. We have our own little Etsy store. It's right there on the front of the page. Click on there. We have a ton of T-shirts for sale for every serial killer imaginable and more on the way, including some that depict our one and only Tammy the Sasquatch Underwood. That's right. Sasquatch (laughs) T-shirts, too. Hey, they, uh, hey they, Scott. They resemble her a lot. Hey, Scott. Yes. Have you gone squatching lately? Gone squatching. <laughs> so log on on. You know, log on on. That makes no sense. Yeah. Log, log on. 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 <laughs> you know, and plus you can interact with us and all kinds of good, good, happy horse shit like that. We also have Brutal Nation t-shirts on there, yes. too. That say Citizens of Brutal Nation. I know that Briar Mitchell has one. Yep. Jen has one. Uh, Jen Dahl has one. Matter of fact, Briar uh, sent me a message. The other day, uh, in the next few months, she's actually going to Mount Everest, oh. and she is going to take a picture of her wearing that shirt on, on, Mount, the, on the mountain on Mount Everest. We're going to be famous. We, I'm already famous, but I want the show You're to be famous. You're only famous in your mind. <laughs> I'm a famous porn star. I, do I tell people porn. all the time, I'm famous in my mind. <laughs> but yeah, log on. Get your own t-shirt and what have not. We have several people who bought them. Uh, you know, it's, it's good times. Dude, and it's, I mean, it's just a way to show your support and your love and to let people know you belong to us. Yeah, plus the show's <laughs> currently completely listener-funded, so. Yeah, completely. Um, and if not, I'm going to have to go to getting advertisers and shit, which I don't want to do. Because... <laughs> Scott's going to have to start walking the streets. No, that's your job on Sandy Boulevard, except, uh, and if I do it, I won't have coupons like you. <laughs> I'm getting flipped off again. Again, that's, that's like the 
third time this morning. And I we've know. only been out this for about an hour. I feel good. Yeah. I feel good. I feel good about that. So, um, so when the authorities questioned William's childhood friends, they said he always seemed to play with one chemistry set or another. However, the loner would also pitter around for hours, disassembling household items just to reassemble them from memory. When Margaret talked about this, she said she often found her eldest son assembling model airplanes, and when he wasn't doing that, he would try to fix their old clocks or take apart mechanical objects just to put them back together. And he also liked to draw. Some of, she said some of her friends commented on Bill's ability to do such work with care and precision. They thought his drawings of airplanes and ships were especially good, and they predicted interesting things for him in the future. However, as he entered his early teens and puberty, his parents' squabbles over finances went from mild to violent. And according to reports, the verbal exchanges became too much for William to endure any longer. When the arguments ensued, he would sneak out of the house and take long walks until he thought it was safe to return home. He later talked about that, saying, Jerry seemed to be able to cope with it. I couldn't. Eventually, he had to do more than walk on those nights. Now, I can understand that. Well, me too, because uh, the place that you're supposed to feel the safest exactly is in your own goddamn home. So, I mean, you're watching it become violent. You're watching your mom and dad sitting there throwing hands at each other and beating the shit out of one another. Right. You know, or even if it's just dad smacking her around. Or even if it's just angry, listen. like screaming matches. That can take its toll on a child, too. Exactly. So I can see where it could have negative psychological impact right on 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 the kids because you're seeing this all the time i know i was raised in that kind of a household that was very very violent right and violence only begets freaking violence right and see but like i said i couldn't find anything that indicated that they were abusive towards the children or abusive towards each other most of what i found it was like like very violent screaming matches. But even screaming matches. Yeah. Because, okay. Well, yeah, and that's what I'm trying to say is like, yeah, there's that. But that also builds tension because even if the child's not being abused or being yelled at for the finances, he's hearing his mom and dad being yelled at. So he doesn't want to do anything like ask for anything to upset them because that's going to cost more money. You know what I mean? So that tension builds up too. Right. Well, so, it's called, it goes back to behavioral conditioning. Mm-hmm. So... If you learned as a child that the way to handle a problem was to sit down and go, hey, man, this is what's going on with me, and maybe I'm, I, like, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but this is how I'm feeling about it, and, and approach it in a constructive way, then as an adult, you're more than likely going to do the same thing because you're trained to do that. Right. Okay, and it's just, just like training for a job. You know, like um, I've trained to play music damn near all my life. I've been playing since I was five years old and writing right. music since I was like in my teens. Um, so it, it goes along with its behavioral conditioning. But if you're taught that the way that we handle problems is to yell at each other and throw things and say horrible, horrific things as an adult, even though you know what's wrong, right. it offers up that era of normality. Right. So you're going to end up yelling at each other, at, at your partner. You're going to throw things. You're going to say horrific things just to kind of tear them down because that is what you're trained to do. Right. You know, so that's a word to the wise to those of you who have kids are going to have kids, man. Dude, fucking teach them right. We don't need more little freaking assholes running around for fuck's sakes. That's true. That's true. Now, as he got it, as William got into his teenage years, he started robbing houses, apartments and stores. Now, he said that he would find that exciting because it actually became a tension reliever for him. 
You know, the <coughs> dangers that he felt thrilled him to and proved to be an antidote to forget his personal issues, right? But, but here's what you're forgetting to add into there, I think, is that also there's a financial gain. If you're robbing places and you're getting rid of the oh, stuff. Oh, but you'll find out. Go ahead. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something here in a minute that kind of negates what you're saying there. Well, you're, you're used to seeing your parents fight about right. money. Right. So if you're robbing places and you're getting excited from it, so it's, you know, this is something that you enjoy doing. Right. And you're gaining a financial gain from that. Right. That is a, its own form of catharsis um, because you're used to being around money problems. Well, now you've got a few bucks in your pocket. That money problem thing takes that stressor out of your life on a personal level. Right. No, I agree with what you're saying, but you're going to find something interesting about him. Because he very rarely stole f- for money. Every once in a while, he'd steal cash, but very rarely. He And of the items he took, like cameras, jewelry, radios, you know, guns, he never, ever tried to pawn them. He never cared to pursue that channel. He simply enjoyed the adrenaline that he got from being able to rob somebody. But even if he's not pawning them, oh, that's knowing true. that he has those items so that if he had to... Mm-hmm. He could pawn them or get rid of them and make some money off. That's it. true. Having that as an option, kind of a think of it like a savings account. Okay, you right. don't you don't have the money in your pocket, right? Right. You but you know that it's there, right? And if you needed it, you can dip into your savings account. It's the same thing. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I, I I totally see. I mean, the, I see what you're saying. Yeah, but... I totally see why he's doing it. I get it. I get it. I mean. He didn't steal chicken or tea bags, so, you know, whatever. Which I think he should have stole tea bags and chicken legs and a remote and a curling iron. Um, because that's Just important because. stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hell yeah. Matter of fact, I think I'm going to start doing that to my neighbors. Fuck it. I'm going to have a whole collection of curling irons and remotes. I don't I don't care about the money or anything like that. I just want the remotes and the curling iron. And damn, if they got chicken in that fridge, it's mine. It is mine. I tell you what, man. I'm going to have gonna chicken for days. You're going to be called the days. great chicken bandit of Vancouver. That's my plan. Uh, th- I can see it now. Uh, dun, dun, dun. Next on Fox News. Does Vancouver, Washington have a chicken bandit? <laughs> Tune in. <laughs> Hi, Mike. This is Stan. I'm standing outside of the home of Mary Smith, who is now missing four, count them, four bags of chicken legs. Mary, what do you have to say? I bought those for a barbecue, and all my family's coming over, and now they're gone. Mike, this isn't the first time that we've heard about this. This is the 17th house in this neighborhood. That has been violently victimized <laughs> and robbed chicken. for their chicken legs. I mean, he hasn't stolen. Uh, whoever it is hasn't taken anything but chicken legs and remote controls. <laughs> so that, that to me is very concerning. Matter of fact, I put extra locks on my house because I don't need to lose my remote control. You know, or my chicken. Or my chicken. It's just, it's scary. You're scary. <laughs> now, when his he actually stole for the first time when he was in seventh grade. Now he was working. <coughs> he had gotten a job as a delivery boy for a local grocery store. Now finding that when he got done making a delivery, he noticed as he got down the road that the tr- customer shortchanged him by a dollar, and that he had chicken. <laughs> and so he kind of panicked a little bit because he knew that the grocer would actually count the money, and he was relying on him to get the correct change. Right. So after. Afraid that he was going to lose that job, he decided, you know what? I need to make up this dollar. Good, he has better work ethics than his loser-ass dad. Exactly. So at the next stop, 
at a nearby apartment building. He, the guy went, the person went to go get their money to give him for the groceries, and he saw some singles lying on the table, and so he just reached over and grabbed one. Oh, okay. Right? And he received such a satisfaction of not getting caught and being able to make up the difference and everything that, you know, he later talked to author Dolores Kennedy about that. He said, he explained his modus operandi like this. He says, and it differed from season to season. So when he says, in the winter, I chose early evening between 5 and 6 p.m. Because it grew dark early, and I could tell whether or not anyone was home. On a dark and stormy night in Chicago. I know. We're back to that. Often, especially in the winter, I burglarized the lakefront area. I would walk around the building, check the windows, and ring the front bell. If no one answered, I would go to the back door. I I go to the back door a lot. (laughs) I know you do. I would enter through a window off the porch and then chain or double lock the front door so that I wouldn't be surprised by people coming in. So that... Tells me, I'm just like, he's thinking about what he's doing. I like the way he thinks. Yeah. No, not because he's stealing, but because it's well thought out and it's methodical. Right. And he's willing to dress up like a pterodactyl. Well, and it also makes it sound like he doesn't do it when people are there. Yeah, no, I, I totally respect that. You know, you know I, I also respect that he wanted to dress up like a pterodactyl. I, I know, just, when I he was a kid, yes. Mad respect for that, man. You know what? This guy's innocent. He's innocent of all charges. <laughs> so he says in the summertime, he would gain access to a, he would mostly rob apartment buildings or hotels because he could get access through the buzzer and then just walk down the halls randomly to find a vacant, you know, an open door because that's around the time when, People actually left their doors open to the hallway to catch the cross breeze because there was no AC. That makes sense, yeah. So he says he would look into the room to see if there was anything of value, and the fire skates were his last resource because there was too much exposure. That's important to know right there, okay? Keep in mind, he said that he very r- rarely used the fire escapes, right? Right, right, right. So author Lucy Freeman were actually, when she was researching her book, um... One of the one of the officers, a guy by the name of Earl Downs, he was in charge of the robbery investigations at was the time. Was his last name Syndrome? No. Earl Downs. Anyways, Earl Downs Syndrome? I hate you. He said that Hirons proved to be somewhat of a Houdini. Now, check out this quote from the officer. He says, that kid was like a monkey. Back in 1942, he used a narrow board to span five-foot area way from a third-floor porch to reach a third-floor bathroom window on this on this at this one place he crawled across the narrow board while 30 feet below him was a cement walkway that if he fell he'd have died the okay same- you know what i'm gonna up my offer william you call me <laughs> i am gonna make you a wonderful you're gonna be on payroll and on salary because <laughs> so, god damn you are not afraid of danger you're not afraid you'll fly across yeah. every crowd as a, as a midgedactyl or as a, at least a pterodactyl well you're hired like right freaking now <laughs> well check this out then there was another time when he lowered himself over the roof to get to a third floor apartment, and the guy said it was like he was a human fly. Or the time he climbed up a wire mesh-covered English basement window to grasp the window ledge and pull himself up to a first floor apartment. How he got a foothold in that wire meshing is beyond imagination. He was like he was like parkouring before parkour was a thing. Dude. Yeah. Where is this guy? I know he's old as shit right now. Yeah. But God (laughs) damn. Yeah. So most of what he stole, he actually stashed in an unused storage shed on a roof of a nearby apartment complex. In no time at all, the shed bulged with women's furs, men's suits, radios, utensils, and guns. 
Wait a minute, furs like a coat or furs like down below? I'm pretty sure it was coat, Scott. Oh, I thought it was now, like she, uh, stealing shaped pubic hair or something. No, remember, that was back in the time when minks were like very popular. Yep. You know, fur coats. Uh-huh. Anyways, um, he said that he liked to take guns because they fascinated him. He would always, I mean, he would like study the unloaded object. He would investigate it every you know, aspect of its mechanicalness. And in those days, many people owned a gun for their protection. So while he was pilfering through the residences and stealing from them, if he saw a gun in the dresser or, you know, in the dining room, like, cabinet, he would go ahead and take it. And then at age 13, he was 13 years old, right before um, he was to graduate from grade school, he encountered his first run-in with the law. He ended up stealing a twenty-five caliber automatic, and when the police officer stopped him because he was looking suspicious... Um, the officer frisked him, uncovered the weapon, and then he's, he was like, he tried to say that he had found it on the ground, but the officer knew he wasn't telling the truth because he was like staring at a story. It's like he couldn't even keep his lie straight. So he took the boy down to a delinquent's home where he was locked up until his hearing, which was three weeks later. Um, he admitted, at that time, he admitted to committing 11 burglaries and to being the procurer of a booty that the police found on his rooftop hideaway. That's weird because you're the procurer of a booty that is large and in charge and known all over 82nd and Sandy and Burnside. Are you done? And parts of downtown Portland. I hate you. And parts of Oregon City. I hate you even And Forest more. Grove and Hillsboro and Beaverton. I hate and you. And <laughs> Are you done? And on, uh, and, and on OnlyFans. And, oh my god! <laughs> I just don't know what you have said. Fuck off! <laughs> so the juvenile courts actually sentenced him. They sent him to do time at the Jabalt School for Wayward Boys in Terre Haute, Terre Haute Indiana. Um, and it was actually a Catholic-run school, but you know, whatever. So he's molested. Uh, well, they don't say that. Yeah, it's Catholic. We know so that there's molestation. Was- I saw the molestation station at the one by your your old house. So that's I just want to throw that out there. So after he was released the following June, because he only spent like around a year there, he returned to his, you know, five finger habits. Um, Stealing became an obsession. And even though he knew it was wrong, he still required it to get the thrills. Right. Because he wanted that excitement. He was arrested. He was arrested again, this time for prowling around the Rogers Park Hotel. And the officers found in his possession was a front door key of another hotel down the block. At the nearest station house, the policeman beat him during his interrogation, but the boy admitted it to his mother. He goes, it was the punishment I deserved. You know, because he knew what he was doing was wrong, right? And he put a ball gag in his mouth and enjoyed it. <sighs> Anyways, this time, the judge ordered him to, to uh, be sent to St. Bede's Academy. That detention center was run by the Benedictine monks on the banks of the Illinois River in Peru. Illinois, not, you know, Peru. Yeah, country. we figured. We figured. I just want to make sure people knew. That's true. Some of our people, Peru? Like Why would they send him from Illinois to Peru? That makes no sense. <laughs> Look, man, you're listening to the wrong podcast. You need to listen to Scotty and Squatch because I'm pretty sure you and Jethro will get along fine. Nice car. Now, while he was at St. Bede's Academy, he was deemed an excellent student and a team player. He became, he became like, on the dean's list. He was at top grades, and he, he also participated in after-school activities, sports and stuff. His academic 
grade point average was so high that they encouraged him to take an admittance into the special learning program of the University of Chicago. And so right before he left the center, he was notified that he was accepted into that program. And they urged him to start the classes the following term in 1945, which allowed him to skip his senior year of high school. God damn. So he was only 16 years old. This achievement pleased his professors, and more than them, his mother, her figured her son had finally outgrown his wayward ways. However, he was a tough learner when it came to the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Now, while he was at St. Bede's, his parents had leased a rambling old frame house on a large but lot in the suburban Lincolnwood with plenty of room for this restless boy to live, right? His mother thought that new scenery would encourage new ideals. But even though he loved to, like, roam the neighborhoods, his rovings led him back to the dark side of breaking and entering. You know what? He was listening to the Sith. Come to the dark side. <laughs> we have stealing. Well, what it is is, even though they were in a new surrounding and it seemed to be, you know, like, less stressed because they weren't in the city anymore, his parents still fought all the time. I want to point this out that that was a Star Wars reference for those of you that didn't get that. Just, just saying. If they don't know what Star Wars is, they are a terrorist. I, I agree. That's a, I mean, if you're not watching Star Wars, man. You're you're a freaking terrorist. Right. So, what did he do when his parents started arguing again? He went back to what he was comfortable with. Um, he, you know, the robberies represented to him a fantasy or a daydream of freedom, almost as if he were out, you know, roaming the open roads. He. Um, Dolores Kennedy talked about it. She said it later became obvious that Bill only stole when he was spending substantial time at home. Now, um, she quotes him as saying when he was away at boarding school, he goes, I wasn't even tempted. Then I would go home and the tensions would build and I would find myself breaking and entering again. See, that that kind of confirms what I had said. It's not having them. It's knowing that you can get the money. Mm -hmm. You've got a large bounty and, you know, and you're listening to your mom and dad bitch at each other about fi- the financial situation when obviously dad's not doing his part like seriously man his dad needed to freaking man up you got a family right. quit taking your friends out drinking and playing ball and bowling and shit like that take care of your family you dickhead yes exactly that's what i'm thinking too check this out um so in the meantime though you know because he had moved in with his parents who you know took up that new house and but he noticed that, you know, when he started his classes at the university, he majored in electrical engineering, which is a good major very, at that yeah. time. You very, know? very. It still is. Exactly. Well, at first, his dad took him to and from, you know, the Hyde Park and dropped him off there and picked him up from there to and from his work. Well, at least that asshole was doing something besides drinking and bowling right? with his friends. Well, then then uh, William realized, you know, I'm spending way more time on the road than I am in classes or studying. So he decided to get a place at Gates Hall near where his classes were being held, so in the dorms. Yeah, smart. So Smart move. But his parents could not afford the tuition, nor could they afford the dorm costs. So you know what he did? Stole to make the money. No. He went out and got jobs. He worked any job he could find. He worked several evenings a week at an orchestra hall downtown as an usher and would also work university functions as a docent. You know what? To earn the money. I, on a serious note, I have mad respect for this yeah. dude. Yeah, because it's like when he was not around his parents, he wasn't stealing. So that tells me something. We getting back into the murders, by the way? In a minute, yeah. Okay. Well, no, because you kind of kind of understand his background for a minute. Here. No, I'm, I'm digging. I'm digging. Yeah. I'm just getting hungry and I want some food. Oh, 
Well, I'm gonna die of starvation here. I can. I can quit no, do, here in a little do bit. Your thing. Do your okay. thing. Do your thing. So, um, then now you made me lose my place. Oh no! Here we go. Now, damn it. Okay, so anyways, so he went out and, you know, all this stuff. However, by the second year, his <laughs> grades actually started to slip a little bit. You know why? He discovered girls, and they had discovered him. Okay. With his dark, wavy hair, he began to, he began investing in a couple of romantic excursions. I'm going to say this as a guy who's been around the block, man. Pussy will fuck you up. <laughs> Like, if I'm serious, man, like, if the sex is good, you will do some stupid shit. You will do some sketch shit, huh? Oh, 100%, man. <laughs> You'll be like, um, I don't need my grades to be higher because I'm getting laid. Yeah. Just, just saying. Yeah, just apparently saying. his favorite girl to date was, uh, they describe her as an attractive blonde named Joanne. S- I don't even know why I'm going to say this. Her name was Joanne Slamma. <laughs> and she lived I on the campus. She was getting slammed on the campus. But when he wasn't dating, he and his roommate, Joe Costello, would actually spend hours discussing philosophy. Yeah, but he was still thinking about Joanna the Slamma. <laughs> I know, right? So then, of course, there were, then, of course, you know, more burglaries. They continued without interruption as what Hiram ascertains a means to supplement his college costs. Hitting unwatched wallets and purses in homes and hotels in the campus area. College is expensive, man. No, he was able to, quote, save enough to buy two $500 U.S. savings bonds. Through underground channels acquainted through university friends, he also garnered stolen war bonds that, once the owner's names could be etched off with a surgical scalpel, were worth about $7,000 apiece. See, smart guy. Yeah, these he kept in a worn suitcase beneath his dorm cot, Beside the surgical equipment that had come his way via most of the things he owned through thievery. Now, he was described in 1955. Um, now, the expressions on his face, barometers of his moods, change swiftly. Most of the time, it's a sensitive face, but uh, every so often, a look of hardness possesses it. When a remark angers Bill, he loses the amiable expression. His hazel eyes glow grazed. And an invisible and impenetrable curtain rises. He has the hands of an artist, long, tapering, well-formed fingers that look as though they could would be skilled in whatever they attempted. Once in a while, he puts his hands on his head to concentrate. I'll tell you, man, with those long fingers and his hardness, I bet you he was into Joanna the Slammer. The yeah. more I think about it. Well, there you go. And she was into him, and he was in <laughs> to well, her. Well, and I really don't get into the murders, per se, again, because... On June 26, 1946, Hirons actually left his dorm and walked towards uh, the Howard Street L, you know, the elevated station. And his ultimate destination was the post office in Skokie, immediately, which is just north of Chicago. He knew the area well and used the post office so many times to cash checks. So he was, and he was low on funds that day. So he decided, you know what, at least cash him one of those bonds, right? So, um... He was on his way there, and that is the day that his life would change forever. He arrived at the post office at 3 p.m., and he noticed that it was locked and dark. There was a sign he'd never before noticed in the window announced that the place closed after noontime during summer months. Angered at having taken the long, hot trip for nothing and realized that he had no cash for the upcoming, you know, date and for his uh, fees at school, 
he decided, you know what, I'm going to burglar somebody. So he went to this apartment complex on Wayne Avenue, um, where he was already familiar with the area, and he had, because he had memorized the layout of the six-story building, and he had targeted several of the places in there before. Now, he said that he opened the front door and approached the buzzer panel, and a woman answered. He said usually he would just talk gibberish, because in those days, the communications in the buildings was through brass tubing, so it's hard to understand people anyways. So since they couldn't understand, they would almost always ring the bell so he could get in, right? So once he went to the third floor, he found an open doorway. He could see a wallet resting on a cabinet, and he scanned the empty room as he entered. And, but as he reached for the wallet, the neighbor next door witnessed the burglary and, you know, set up an alarm. He could hear the people chasing after him, and he was afraid the noisy interceder might be circling the block roundabout because he could hear his person, like, coming, like, heavy breathing, I guess. Is what I'm trying to say, and I didn't want to say those words, but I couldn't help myself. I kept going around it, and I was like, "Just say it." Um, yes. So, anyways, uh, oh actually, yes, shut up. So he was trying to get away from his pursuer, and so he actually climbed a wooden fire escape behind this another apartment building, and one of the tenants saw him and saw that he was scared, so she phoned the police. So the cops came in, and when they saw when he saw them approaching, he attempted to run again. But seeing that they blocked both ends, he just knew he was trapped, and he gave up. He was like, "You know what? I'm done." Yeah, smart move. Yeah. So both policemen neared him. Um, he saw no alternative but to um, he actually, and this is the sad part. He did kind of like point the gun at the officer, but nothing happened. You know what I mean? It's just really weird. Uh, what do you mean nothing happened? Like they didn't, didn't shoot, shoot him or he no, didn't shoot he didn't them? Shoot. What happened? He didn't shoot. The officer ducked, but William didn't shoot him. Okay. You know? And I think he just did it to try to get the officers off guard so they would, like, stop pursuing him for a minute. Yeah, it makes you know? sense. Okay. So, but It's stupid, but it yeah, makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So, um, apparently... That happened, and they pursued him again in a tangle. In, you know, they got into a little scuffle. Then there was an off-duty patrolman named Abner Cunningham. That is such an old name. Who Abner. saw it and joined in. And he also saw Hirons point the gun, and he expressed that he had no intention to fire it. He only wanted to scare the guy so that, you know, he might break through and, like, disrupt him from chasing after him. So if that were the case, he had done the worst thing he probably could have done, which was, you know... Irritate the officers on a hot day, right? Yeah, that's not the smartest thing you yeah. can do to the cops. I mean, these are some freaking witness-beaten fucking cops here. You might not want to yeah. piss them off. Yeah, well, apparently, <laughs> this this off-duty officer got into the struggle and grabbed three of the clay flower pots off the railing and dropped them one at a time onto William's head. Ooh, damn, <laughs> that's going to leave a mark. Yeah, but it's like, you know what? There you go. Now, the first thing William became aware of when he awoke in Bridewell... Was with, the dirt in his hair. Well, no, his, his <laughs> like, he was, like, knocked out. And when he woke up, he was in the hospital with, like, bandage covering his head. Um, he said the first thing he heard whispered in his ear were Hiron's suspect child, Degnan. Now, Birdwell was a hospital attached to the Cook County Jail... And his eyes were still closed, but he could feel his fingertips being forcibly pressed down one after another onto a cold pink 
an ink pad, then onto the crinkle of paper. It was a sensation he recognized even like in and out of consciousness. Now, there were people in his room and people outside his room. So voices were fading in and out in a monotonous. He said it was a monotonous undertone. Like he couldn't understand what they were saying. No, I, I can. I, I've yeah. woken up after surgeries. Oh, me too. And I've heard people talking, but it's you, 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 you can hear words. Right. But it's kind of like you're listening underwater and you can't yeah, really make it's muffled. out what yeah. they say unless they say your name directly. Yeah, like, like Tammy, Tammy, breathe. No, they, they <laughs> did that to me after I had my, uh, my <laughs> testicular torsion surgery. I can, yeah. I woke up and I could hear the nurses talking and I can't tell you what they were talking about, but all of a sudden, breathe, Mr. Alexander. And I went, okay, I'm breathing. And uh, then they start talking again. I don't know, probably about Pop-Tarts and toaster strudels and fucking nurse time. Well, I remember after my knee surgery, because I was in and out of consciousness, and I kept hearing this beeping, and I remember saying out loud, stop the beeping, and the lady goes, if you would breathe, it would stop. And I go, oh, okay. (laughs) Okay, that's a good compromise. I'll breathe. You stop the beating. Mm -hmm. We're beating. Yep, there you go. (laughs) So anyways. Beeping? Beeping. That's what I'm thinking. Yes. Beeping. So... So, like I said, believable. he was, you know, he was in and out of consciousness. He was like the voices. He couldn't understand what they were saying. But he did feel him. He said he thought he felt himself being wheeled from one room to another, which was a jar. And then he felt the jarring mo- movement under his mattress. He heard the squeak of bed wheels. He saw interns in their white coats. Someone talking about x-rays and then a voice saying something like, now rush him back to the examining room where everyone's waiting. Then he was being wheeled once more down a fuzzy hallway with lights overhead that he really couldn't make out anything with, you know, into another room where he heard voices. Only this time they sounded more chaotic and it was like terse voices. Most of them, he said they were loud. And then all of a sudden the faces became were blurring into twisted fat noses shoving into his with glaring <laughs> eyeballs nearly tapping his own. Dude, that so sounds like, like me when I, face. I was tripping out on acid once. And I think that happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, he also said that he was still in and out of consciousness when he felt these big hands shoving him while he laid in the bed and now he was aware that he was actually strapped down and the shoving continued he couldn't move but this guy kept shoving him now he says big hands with fingers and thumbs like little logs pushing in his shoulder pinching his elbow elbows and pounding his hips and jabbing his rib cage oh i've I've pounded some hips in my time (laughs) and the more he woke up the harder they pushed and pinched and pounded and jabbed Shut up, Scott. <laughs> he Roof, said, "Take roofing all much." <laughs> yeah, roofing. he said that it took him a while, but suddenly he became aware that they're accusing me of more than breaking and entering. He listened to what their questions were, and under duress, he slowly realized they were blaming him for killing Suzanne Degnan. They were asking questions about her and asking why he loved to cut up little children. The more he protested, he said later, the more they beat him. Hour after hour, they grilled him until he, until he just couldn't take anymore. At one point, a patrolman slammed his fist so hard against William's testicles, he nearly vomited. Now That's an asshole move yeah. right there. Fuck, man. Well, and then what happened is, is he undergoes all of this. And it's like continuous. When one, when one shift of the police officers left for the day, another took over. It's not like he got no break. Right. And they kept saying, aren't you sorry, Bill? 
Tell us how you did it. You know you did it, and God knows you did it. Confess, Bill, and save yourself. We know you're guilty. You killed her, you son of a bitch. You killed her. The game's over. You're guilty. Now tell us how you did it. Tell us. Right? It's like you're not even letting him answer a question. What? Assholes, okay. man. So they, they probably, uh, you know what? I bet you that's where all Vancouver police come from is a long line of those who were cops in the Chicago area mm-hmm. at that time. I'm, I'm, I'm putting two and two together now, and I'm coming up with Vancouver. Yeah, there you go. Now, he was, they, they questioned him relentlessly. They threw out threatening accusations at him, and they never let up. It was over and over and over again. Whether it was daytime or nighttime, it didn't matter. He was a suspect, and they were questioning him. They never gave him a break. When he was fully conscious, he noticed that he was strapped, spread-eagled onto his bed with each arm and leg tied down. You know, he couldn't move. So a policeman whose name he thought was Hanoran picked up where other integrators left off, asking him the same questions, hurling the same accusations, but walloping harder physically than any of the others. The small exam room where he was laying at any given time was packed with men in uniform. Eyeballs that were like digging into him like in their inquisitiveness and it's like they were not letting up. Okay? Um hang on. Okay. Now two psychiatrists who introduced themselves to William as Dr. Haynes and Dr. Grinker told him that they were going to put him to sleep. On the table over his bed, they placed two vials, one containing an amber liquid, he said, and the other one a white powder. They, the police around Hiram's cot actually took a step back, and the doctors came in, mixed the two solutions together, and watched as William was injected with the needle, right? Um, I guess Hiram's replied with, leave me alone, I can go to sleep on my own. So he said, I don't want this. He made it clear. The doctors both only smiled and resumed what they were doing. They pricked the boy's right bicep and they ne- with the needle and asked him to count backwards starting with 100. Kind of like an old song, 100 bottles of beer on the wall is what he was told. Um, they watched him smirk until he, at number 40, 94, drifted off into subconsciousness with the sodium pentothal truth serum. So... I'm sorry, I got stopped mid-sentence. So they could administer the sodium pentothal or the truth serum, right? Right. Now, oh my God, I lost my place again, sorry. Now we're going in. Know your place. Shut up. Now we're going into a first, another line of questioning, okay? Um, Weeks that led to his ultimate confession as the murderer of Josephine, Francis, and Suzanne. While it's not this story's purpose to defend or accuse him, um, I want people to understand what happened, right? Um, where was it? Okay. According to the authorities, while, while William was under the sodium pentothal, he spoke of a strange alter ego who he called George, who committed his crimes for him. Now, he said that this, uh, this George was a reflection of Lewis, Robert Louis Stevens' character, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay? Are you following? I'm following. Okay. My whole thing is, sodium pentothal is not really a truth serum. People think it is, but it's not. Plus, there's better ones that they could have used. I think they still had, I think that they had scopolamine then, and that would have been a little bit better, but okay. Oh, would have been? 
I don't even know. I never did. But apparently, I mean, because it's telling me that I think he was hallucinating. I think so, too. You know? Honestly, I think that... Because uh, it is a hypnotic drug. Yep. So, he said that... uh, Let's see. He said that he, he upheld his innocence, but he does recall one thing, that after he was administered the drug, he says, I had a strange compulsion to take the blame for all the charges pressed against me. It must have been a post-hypnotic influence, which I can see that. No, totally. Totally, you know? totally. And he's, he said, in the beginning, it didn't have much effect, but later it overcame my own will and judgment of my innocence for those crimes. Now, while he was under the influence of the drug, um, he was asked what George's last name was, and he apparently told the examiners he didn't know that it was, and then he was murmuring a name. And so when they actually, the police transcribed that in the reports, they said merman. And so the press dramatized that and said his name was George Murderman. You know, you can see where telephone got involved, right? Fucking goddamn press, man. Okay, now, what actually happened in that exam room that day is still being debated. There is a drug-induced interview, there's no doubt, okay? That's a fact. But nobody can, because the transcript of the interview, of the questions that were asked, suddenly disappeared. Plus, it's it's not admissible in a court of law. Well, back then it was. Oh, by by today's standards, it isn't, just like a polygraph. It's not admissible. Exactly. But the weird thing is, is nobody can find that original confession anywhere anymore. Of course not. These assholes are too busy beating the shit out of people. I'm pretty sure they fucking lied about it. I honestly don't think that this dude, and I actually, I can say this with confidence, because normally I give everybody the benefit of the doubt right from the get-go. This guy's a thief. He's a smart thief. Yeah. He's not a fucking killer. Yeah. Well, and so, and then <coughs> what also complicates the issue is there's confusion <coughs> over who ordered the sodium pentothal. The doctors at the hospital said that they or, the, te- the drugs were, were ordered by Tui, the state's attorney. However, he said in an interview that he said, I've seen the transcripts, but it's not ready to be released. And he later denied knowing anything about the examination at all. Okay, so his his story's changing over time. All of them are liar, liar, yeah. pants on fire. Though is that Tui said that he was not present at the interview and quote, or I would have liked to ask him questions, but witnesses have testified that he was right there beside the guy when he was making his confession. So. Of sodium pentothal, experts claim that answers given under its effect could easily be suggested in advance by sub- subtly or strategically formulated questions. Now, another well-known psychiatrist inferred that the drug also digs into the layer of subconscious in such a way as to surface inject thoughts and refashion them as something valid. For instance, suppose for one or two days someone repeats to you that you are a monkey's uncle. Are you a monkey's uncle? Aren't you a monkey's uncle? Then suppose you're given truth serum. You may very likely say, I am a monkey's uncle. You haven't met my freaking niece and nephew. Why? Because you are a monkey's uncle? I am a monkey's (laughs) uncle. (laughs) So all of this is conjecture and can't be defended or argued because there's no record of it anymore. You know, so, however... One revelation by Dr. Grinker later in 1952 when he admitted that despite the allusions to an evil alter ego, Hirons, during his interview, never did directly involve himself in any crime. So he talked about this George Merman or Murder Man, 
but he never ever directly insinuated that he committed any crimes under sodium pentothal. I don't think he did. Yeah. So, you know, so then they go through and they do the, um, they do the uh, fingerprint testing and everything like that. And then on the fifth day in custody, a nurse and doctor um, laid, laid William in a fetal position and ordered him to remain silent until they were done with what they needed to do. What they planned was a spinal tap, drawing fluid from his spine. According to Dolores Kennedy, she said this was done with no anesthetic preparation, apparently to rule out any possibility of brain damage, but for the patient, the pain was excruciating. I can attest to that. I watched my son get a spinal tap when they thought he had meningitis, and it was excruciating for me to watch. You know, because they stick a needle into your spine. Yeah, I know how that's working. I yeah. know how that works. Ugh. I just, I can't. So normally after a procedure like that, the patient is left on his or her back for several hours, giving the pressure in the spine time to equalize, right? But he was only allowed to stay that way for 15 minutes before they yanked him from his bed, strapped him to a chair, and dropped into another patrol wagon. The ride to the detective bureau apparently was pure hell as a police van traveled a street with a streetcar line, uh, street line, streetcar line on it. So the tracks were like, and cobblestone. So it was jolting. And he was supposed to be lying flat. So there's that. So it's like, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it just boggles my mind when I'm thinking about it, about the fact that he was tortured. Okay. He was literally tortured for eight days. He wasn't allowed to see his parents. He was a minor. Wasn't allowed to see his parents. Wasn't allowed an attorney until after they were done questioning him. Kind of like they did Chester Wiggins. Right. You know, it's like, where the hell is his rights as a, you know, the right to be innocent until proven guilty, right? See, they wonder why we're so hard on cops now. It's because uh-huh. of pricks in the past like this. You know, these cops here, not 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 Bill Hirons. Um, I don't think that he did it. Yeah. That's just that. That's my opinion on it. Uh, you know, and I'm sure there, there'll be people out there who will bitch at me about it. But I don't give a shit. I don't think this dude did it. He's not a killer. He's a fucking thief. Well, yeah. Well, and check this out. So as soon as they got him to the police station, they wanted him to take a lie detector test. But he was in such physical agony that they couldn't do it. So they rescheduled it for four days later. According to Tui, the test was inconclusive. However, in 1953, um said to the two guys who invented the lie detector instrument that was used okay um actually published the test findings in a textbook called lie detection and criminal interrogation according to them the inventors of the machine the test was not inconclusive murderer william hirons was questioned about the killing and dismemberment of six-year-old susan degnan on the basis of the conventional testing theory his responses on the card test clearly establishes him as an innocent person now why you ask do they hide those findings because if they were released they would have to eat crow again right Exactly, and here's the problem that I have with a lot of cop shops um, right. that, that we've done. When they get proven that they've done something wrong, okay, let's take Keith Jesperson, okay? Let's right. go to Keithy Poo. Um, when he was being transferred back down to Southern California, San Bernardino, um, the cops are sitting there showing them pictures of the girl from Livingston, California mm-hmm. that they had found that wasn't where he put her. And right. wasn't even the same girl. Right. 
but yet they're not willing to investigate it any further. They wanted him to admit to it because if they did, they would have to admit that, hey, we fucked up. Plus, this chick died after he had already left town. Right. She made it to her drug freaking counseling treatment thingy like the next day. Right. Now, I don't know about you. I'm, I can get a lot of shit done. Yes. Okay. However, if something needs to be physically done in California, and right. I'm sitting here in Vancouver, Washington, and it has to be done right now, I can't do it. I can't do it unless I'm there. Exactly. And it sounds like these assholes go over the same fucking thing. Like, hey, we, we're, we're going to put an end to this, right or wrong. We're going to, you know, because this guy's a thief, we're going to fuck with him and just be assholes. Right. Fucking idiots, man. Well, and check this out. Because before the lie detector test was administered, which the inventors of the lie detector saying he was being completely truthful in that. Um, but bef- but at- it was like right after the truth serum was administered. Apparently, he asked to see the captain of the police department. Now, apparently, this captain is one of the few who showed him any kindness during this whole debacle. So he actually told the captain that he had more to say about his alter ego, George. So the captain sent for Tui and a stenographer, and they all came into the room. And uh, William said that there was a guy by the name of George he talked to, you know, who wasn't a guy, but, you know, part of his psyche. Who did things for him? Who may have been responsible? Who may have been responsible for the crimes that were being tacked to William Hirons? It was George who stole the guns. Who may have crawled into San- Suzanne's window and who may have killed those other women? That's important to know. He said may have. I know. I caught on to that. Okay, I just wanted that to be clear. I'm picking up what you're laying down. I hear okay. you chirping, Big Bird. So now the author, Dolores Kennedy, who actually <laughs> spoke to William Hirons for her book, she said that. Part of which was to clarify the, his reasonings for actually resurrecting this George character that is proven to be not a person, right? She thinks that he was tired. He saw that everything was stacked against him, that they were not going to let up. He was in severe pain. He just wanted to be left alone. It's defense mechanism. I could right. have told you that So one. he didn't want to actually confess to the charges because he didn't do it. But he thought he could mislead the police or perhaps just give him a little time to rest. So he said that this George may have done it, right? So it's like, so in less than a week, the attorney's office had built up an, what they called an impenetrable case against William Hirons with the evidence mounting against him. He was refused permission to speak to his lawyers until after six days. He didn't know much about lawyers and of his counsel. He knew only their names. There were three that it was the Coughlin brothers and John and Malachi, which, oh my God, don't ever name your kid Malachi. Uh, They want you to Malachi. Apparently they were some of the smartest criminal lawyers in Chicago. And the the third attorney, Roland, I don't know if it's Towley or Towel. He was actually a whiz in civil law. So they presi- they petitioned to have Hi- William, who was looking very worse for wear, released from custody and transferred to the sheriff's office. Are we ready to wrap this up pretty soon? Uh, you know what? I'll go ahead and wrap it up now because I have probably a couple good idea. more sections, and I, but I know you're getting hungry. So I'm hungry, and I have to use the bathroom. And uh, I got to change my laundry out anyway. So we'll stop right there and do a part three. That gets, you know, into his defense. Beauty. All right, boys and girls. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, or wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. 
you'll see on the very main screen, we do have a link to our Etsy store where we have a lot of t-shirts going on about serial killers with some of the crazy and wacky things that they've done and said. We also have a whole section dedicated to our one and only Tammy the Sasquatch Underwood. All the pictures depict a, uh, on, that, on that part of the page is of Sasquatch and her doing everything around the world. Squatchy shit. Squatchy like, shit. It's like shady shit, but different. It's not shady. I actually lay out in the sun on one of them, or two. I'm fucking terrified now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm a sea squatch. <laughs> I've used that one. I more. know. I've g- I gave you that one. <laughs> there you All go. All right. Remember, this show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved, and if you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying, thieving bastards. <laughs> And we will talk to you guys later on. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.